Hello and you're very welcome to another episode of the IFF TV podcast. Today joining Paul on the podcast is Westlife star Nicky Byrne. Nicky was a former professional footballer who went on to play for Leeds United, Shelburne, Cove Ramblers and a couple of other clubs. He goes on to tell Paul about his football journey as well as becoming a pop star with Westlife. Make sure to check it out, don't forget to share it with your friends, like it and give it a five star rating. Here we go. Good stuff. Well, I'm not sure if everybody knows this, uh, but obviously we're, we're a football fan page and you're a massive football fan and you, you're a former professional footballer. So do you want to talk me through kind of your, your professional football journey and who you support and all that type of stuff from an early age, I suppose, take, take it away? So early age football was, was everything to me, you know, growing up, I grew up in uh, Baldoyle in uh, North Dublin. So um, it was everything from playing in the garden with my dad as a kid to playing football on the road with my mates. Um, and that's really where, I guess, love for football developed for a lot of young lads. Uh, probably still is a little bit. Um, Man United fan all my life. Um, my first memory of football would have been 85, the uh, FA Cup final when Norman Whiteside scored an amazing goal in Wembley on Neville Southall. So uh, that was my first ever memory. I was seven. And then the year after that was Mexico 86 and uh, Maradona's handball and obviously the great goal and Great tournament. My favourite team then was Brazil because Ireland, obviously, we didn't qualify. And the love from football kind of continued from there. At six, I went to home farm mini leagues and um, that was brilliant. You know, we got scouted then to, to play for home farm and ended up playing 10 years, 11 years with home farm. I actually played from under seven or six, uh, under 10 for three or four years because that's how it worked then. There was no underage, you know, kind of small sided games or anything. So, uh, yeah, played home farm for 10, 11 years and then St. Kevin's Boys for for a year before I signed for Leeds United. And how did the, the move to Leeds come about? Because I've seen that, obviously, I commented yesterday on the picture that uh, you put up there at the squad and you were 16 yeah. years old. So how, how did the move kind of come about and then talk to us about that day where you, where you robbed the team sheet? <laughs> so, like any young lad, we were, you, know, you want to play. If you, if you play as much, you know, if you're train, training three or four times a week, you want to play at the highest level. And England to play for Man United, for example, was the dream. To play for Ireland in World Cup or even, you know, to represent your country was always the dream. Um, then from about the age of, I guess, 12, 13, 14 is when we all started getting scouted. And I had done a, a goalkeeping, FAI goalkeeping course in the AUL and Neville Southall had taken it. And he seemed particularly interested and he was talking to my dad quite a lot. And there was rumours of he maybe potentially, you know, kind of gone over to Everton on trial. Um and then uh, Leeds United came. There was a, a Leeds United scout called Paddy Hilliard, uh, who's sadly not with us anymore. He passed away. But Paddy sent myself, uh, Alan Mabry, Steve McPhail, John Butler and Damien Lynch uh, pretty much all over within a year of each other. Ian Hart had gone the year before us. Um, Tony Grant, Al O'Shea had gone a, a year before us as well. And uh, Gary Kelly obviously was there a couple of years at that point. So, yeah, it, it, it went from there. I went uh, on trial with Leeds in uh, June '94. Uh, just during the USA 94 World Cup and uh, myself and Alan Mabry and we did two weeks pre-season training and uh, from there I went to Derby County on trial and some other clubs kind of sniffed around but Leeds were offering a contract and when that happens you kind of you're kind of half fearful that as they said they didn't want to get into a Dutch auction so you're nearly fearful that they'd pull out of a deal or something or they might not you know they might change their mind so uh, we agreed terms with Leeds and I, I left and went over there of June 95. And how was that, considering you were so young going over? What was what was the thoughts behind your family for you going over? 
Um, well, I think I think I like like I said earlier, you know, you, the dream is to be a, a pro footballer. So the opportunity to sign for a Premiership club at that point, Leeds had won the first division title just before the Premiership had started in '93, I think it was. So Leeds had won the first division '92. This was only two years later. So this would be equivalent to today going over to sign for Manchester City or Chelsea or Manchester United, for example. Um, you know, nowadays when you speak of signing for Leeds, sadly and unfortunately, people look at it like, I don't know, like a lower kind of League One or a top League One club or a championship club, should I say. Uh, whereas Leeds were the biggest clubs in, in Britain. But anyway, it was a dream come true. Um, but obviously I was I, I had to have li- I've left school and that was a big problem, you know. Um, leaving school, my mum really didn't want me to do that. Uh, my dad was kind of like, this is a huge opportunity. So I promised my parents that if it didn't work out, I'd come back and sit the leaving cert in time, which when it didn't work out, I did do that. So thankfully, I got, I got that under my belt a couple of years later. But I mean, you know, the the the, the carrot that, that big clubs dangle at that point, whether it's money. I mean, my signing on fee was 10 grand, I think. And, um, you know, this was 1995. I was 16. Um, I think my wages was 250 quid a week, year one. 300 year two and this was without any expenses like this was Diggs was taken care of separately by the club as well so this money was mine this was like I've just left school and I'm I'm rich you know what I mean this is my mates are doing the leaving cert and I'm rich you know in, in relative terms so uh, it was amazing but more than that it was the opportunity to be a pro footballer and uh, that was at that point all, all the, the hard work starts then but it was all the dreams come true yeah but as you said there you know I think the hardest part is when you're in the Diggs um, you know, it could be a very lonely place. I'm speaking, I did a lot of interviews with players over the quarantine and just saying how the digs can be the hardest part when you're over there, you don't have anybody around. I suppose it's a bit easier now because there is social media and you can FaceTime people. But obviously back then, that wasn't the case. I think that must make... Uh, th- look, there's, there's a lot of negatives to social media, don't get me wrong, a huge amount. Um, but I also believe in, in, in there's many positives. And I think in that situation, being in contact with people regularly, um, being able to, as we're doing now, you know, whether it's Insta Live, FaceTime, WhatsApp messages, text messages. Um, like back then, there was no mobile phones. We were all working off a pay phone, which, which meant you changing some of your money into pound coins and putting it into the machine. Also, it meant waiting on the phone to be free. And with, you know, the likes of in the digs, for example, there was me, Harry Kuehl, Alan Mabry, Steve McPhail, um, a guy called Lawrence Davis, who, were, who was Welsh. Um, and, and even some of the English lads who are from Middlesbrough or London or, you know, all living away from home, effectively. Everybody looking to get the phone. So nowadays, like nowadays, if you're in the team, you're texting your mates or your parents going, you know, played well or dropped today or whatever the case might be. Um, that was just not there then. So I think that must be a lot easier. At the same time, social media brings its own, you know, horrendous stories. So... Um, yeah, I, I do think from that point of view, I mean, if my young lads were away now, I think it'd be easier to communicate with them and maybe find out how they were, they were coping with it all. Um, like, back then, if you, if you look at it, there wasn't much contact. Like, I played Ireland on the 15s, 16s, 18s, but we only really heard from the FAI when you were called up for an international game. There was no real checking up on to see how you were coping I don't just mean like playing away from or playing uh, football but how you were coping away from home like how you were actually settling in which is a big thing for 16 year olds you know yeah because Terry Field actually even said it. he was he was he would have been at Leeds when you were there I think or maybe just left he'd just gone actually at that point he'd just gone yeah yeah what he was saying like about 
about that, you know, he got a call up for Ireland, um, but Terry Setters rang him up the day before Ireland were playing or the day before they travelled, and he had no other idea other than the fact that, you know, if you're not getting on the plane, you're never going to play for Ireland. So he literally jumped on the plane the next day and was in the Ireland squad. But as you say, it's 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 put out now a couple of weeks beforehand and you kind of have a rough idea if you're in the provisional squad. But back then it was, you're in the squad tomorrow. If you don't travel, you're gone, basically. So it was a bit ruthless back then. Absolutely. I mean, how it worked for us back then was uh, Leeds United would get a fax um, to, to say which, which players were selected for international duty. And, um, and then the manager would come and tell us. Now, in the meantime... The paper might be, or the squad might be in the paper, and your parents would get whether it was the the press or the Herald or the Star or whatever, and say, "Yeah, the squad's there, you're in it." Uh, or it might be announced on Airtel, you know, kind of teletext, and, and that, that, that's how it was then, you know. And that doesn't seem—I mean, it is—it's 25 years ago, but it, for me, it seems like like yesterday, you know. Yeah, no, it would as well. But you, I know you said there earlier about uh, you know the fact that you can say, oh, I had a bad game or I text him back home. But a lot of people can actually see or hear of reports of games because of the internet. But obviously, as you say, back then, it was a case you'd probably have to write a letter or something or you'd probably have to wait your turn to get to the phone to say, oh, I played deadly. Or you're, you're obviously buzzing to tell your family that you played deadly or else you'd be like, oh, no, I had a bad game. But either way, they wouldn't know till they heard it from you. Whereas these days, it's so easy to get information. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's, a different, um, it's a different world. And even... I mean, you touched on me, you know, kind of nicking the, the first team squad when I was named in that. And like when that happened, I was only, I'd signed for Leeds in June 95. And this was, we did pre-season training for whatever, three, four weeks. And then the, the, the season pretty much starts in the beginning of August. And two weeks into that. So I was at the club maybe six, seven, eight weeks, eight weeks maximum. And so eight weeks out of school. And um, Mark Beanie, the reserve keeper, had been sent off in a reserve game. Uh, John Lukage was the first team keeper. And he, he was obviously in the squad. And they, uh, they called upon me then to travel down for that game, uh, which was against Southampton in uh, August 95. But even then, to be able to tell my parents, it was, it was talking about calling on a, on a payphone. You know, to, I remember calling just before I left the digs to meet up with the first-team squad at Ellen Road before we travelled down. And then I remember calling them from the hotel in Southampton when we got there, which was probably six hours on a bus down from Leeds. Um, and then I was rooming with Andy Cousins, and um, like now, just to, I was talking to Andy on Twitter about it yesterday. Like Andy ordered room service, ice cream that night, <laughs> and ended up paying the bill. I always, I always tell Andy, like you know, he bought me ice cream um, that on my on my only first team uh, away trip. Uh, but yeah, even that, like you know, it's it's you look at it now and it's it's all different. It's all so much different. But when I was called into that squad, that was just I mean, to be in a Premiership squad at sixteen was, and and it was by default, I know, but it was incredible to travel down with the likes of. Gary Speed, Gary McAllister, uh, Gary Kelly, Tony Aboa, uh, Brian Dean, David Weiss, you know, Carlton Palmer, you know, Tony Dorigo. The, the list was endless. You know, it was it was it was an amazing experience. Yeah, and as you say, all big characters as well. What was Gary Kelly like yourself? I know he's a bit of a messer. I'd say he was good crack to be around. Gaz, Gaz is a big messer, but he's also got a heart of gold. And I was Gary's boot boy, so uh, he looked after me. You know, I was. Uh, he was a good lad, but also loved loved the Irish. Loved always up for a bit of bit of banter and that, but loved loved the Irish lads. When I always look after, like when I left Leeds, Gaz was the one of the only lads, funnily enough, um, that called me in my mom and dad's house and asked me, did I need anything? Did I need boots? Did I need gloves? Did I need money? You know, he was he's got a he's got a good heart like that, you know. And uh, I mean, Gaz was the was the ultimate success story for a footballer leaving Ireland. 
and staying at the one club and breaking through at such, such a young age and then, you know, obviously representing Ireland at World Cups, etc. Um, I still keep in contact with him. He's a, he's a good lad, is, is Gary. And a great tipper when it came to cleaning his boots. You know, he was... Uh, the good thing was, though, he used to wear mitre boots and they were tiny. He wore size six. So there, were, there wasn't much cleaning in them. Whereas John Lukic, I cleaned his boots a few times. He was about size 14. So that used to take a couple of hours. But um, yeah, Gaz is, Gaz is top man. How did you find the overall experience? Because I know you said that you, you went over and then you made a promise that you'd come back and do the leaving cert. So what was the thought process, you know, when, you, when you're kind of thinking, all right, well, I'm going to go back. Um, did, it, did it kill you to go back? When you mean you mean go back, uh, go to visit? Or, what do you mean? Oh, back home, sorry. Um, yeah, I felt like, I mean, it's everything I've ever wished for from the age of whatever six you train for. Uh, you get the opportunity. Um, I mean, football was going to be my life. There was no doubt about it. That's how I thought. That's what you have to think. Um, and all of a sudden, the rug got pulled from underneath. Um, and I ended up going, and this is where I think there's probably a little bit of, well, certainly when I was there, um, l- lack of uh, protection for, for the lads that are playing. Because when I got released, I went on trial with Cambridge and then to Scarborough. And all of a sudden, I found myself um, getting on trains at Leeds and York, Leeds to York, York to Peterborough, Peterborough connected to Cambridge. I mean, I was 18 and I'm traveling around England on my own. Um, and then up north, that was down to Cambridge and then equally up to, to Scarborough to play reserve games. I, I just I just felt... Together. They were fourth division teams, clubs, whereas Leeds was premiership. And I was like, this isn't for me. And that's that's the difficult part because... You know, on one hand, you, you don't want the football dream to die. And, you know, you speak to people back home, you know, particularly me, my parents and my dad would have been like, oh, you know, don't give up, give it a go, give it another shot, go somewhere else. Um, I guess because my height was always a restriction for me as a goalkeeper, I had that in the back of my mind. And um, I, I hated football, if I'm honest, at the end of it. Uh, and then I decided to come home. I signed for, for Shells. Um, wow. And, and yeah, yeah, good lad. And uh, if you remember, Alan Goff would have been poor choice. And well, I was 18, 19, Goff, he was probably 30, 31 then. So he was, you know, an established professional. I was, a, you know, an up-and-coming goalkeeper. So Goffy was always going to be poor choice. And uh, Damien Richardson was the manager. And Damien said that to me, you know, we'll be on the bench. Um, yourself and Stephen O'Brien will battle it out pretty much. Um, Goffy's first choice. And then the opportunity to go to Cove Randers came up, who were first division, but they needed a goalkeeper. So we, uh, we agreed that I would tra- continue to train with Shells and travel at the weekends to play for Cove. Um, and then I did that basically for that season. And uh, we started off quite well with Cove. We, we beat Waterford in the opening game of the League Cup uh, 5-0. Then we beat Kilkenny, who were Premiership, and Waterford were Premiership as well. Beat Kilkenny 1-0 and then we, uh, in Buckley Park. And then we drew one all with Cork in the, in the Cork Derby in, in uh, St. Coleman's. Uh, we, I think we got to the semi-final of the League Cup that year, but our, our, our league form kind of dipped and we started to lose, concede late goals. And um, By Christmas, I picked up an injury. I was out of the squad and um, out of contention. And then uh, the, the start of the next year, kind of into January, February, March, um, I'd had uh, Bray Wanderers had spoken to me through Pat Devlin because back then you could, there was no, you know, you could sign at any point in the season. It was, you know, people could talk to who you like. And uh, I was kind of all set to go to same to uh, sorry to Bray Wonders at you know the start of the next season, and then it and then Westlife happened, so that all changed. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to get to the Westlife part in a little bit, but um, at that point you represented obviously Ireland from underage the whole way up. Obviously, your dream then was um, to play for Ireland, and you said there that you 
you know, you fell out, you fell out of love with football, which happens to so many players that go to England and come back. They they end up hating it. What was it that gave you that kind of that love back? I know because I know you have a son now who, who's playing underage League of Ireland now and doing quite well. Uh, it took a long time actually because I think when I came home that the and again it might be different now to be honest, but when I came home. I've gone from a premiership club, working to get there, and even though the, the real hard work starts then, um, then I came home. League of Ireland was was semi-professional. There was a couple of pro starting, you know, the likes of Shells, Shamrock Rovers, were starting to look past maybe, were starting to look at pro, um, you know, to try and go pro. Um, but the rest of the clubs were were were, were semi-pro. I mean, so Cove Ramblers were, you know, absolutely, you know, semi-pro and et cetera. So but you couldn't afford a living on playing professional or playing semi-pro football without having a job as well so um, plus the training side of it you know you weren't training even at Shells we were training I think three nights a week um, it wasn't it wasn't full time um, yeah. and you do there's no doubt about it you, you, you dip you dip in form you, you can't be you can't compete at a professional level if you're not training at a professional level so um, the, certainly the love that had died for me uh, I was back home and you know, I hooked back up with my friends. I was going back to do my leaving cert. Um, and football, although I, I, I'd applied for the guards, I'd done the aptitude test after the leaving cert to go to the guards and I'd gotten that. And I was due to, to wait for the guards to, you know, to be called up. And I kind of thought, well, semi-pro football in Ireland as, and being a member of, of the guards um, would be a decent living and a good living and etc. So uh, that obviously changed when Westlife auditions happened. But the, even for the next, see, I got into Westlife pretty quickly after that and, I totally just forgot about football. And it sounds strange to say, but because I'd literally played all my life to that point. Um, but I didn't want to play it anymore. I didn't care about it. Even though I was a Man United fan and I would always look out for Leeds as well, I didn't care about it. I, a funny story, about three years after that, I'd say about three, I was in the pub one day and Wesley had gone, you know, to do what we did. We were pretty successful at the time. And I was home for one kind of random weekend and I was out with the lads, some of my friends. And we were watching a, a, a premiership game and Paul Ince was playing for Liverpool. And I remember looking at the screen, look at the lads going, when did Paul Ince sign for Liverpool? I couldn't believe it because obviously Ince had been at United and then he'd gone on, whoever he'd gone on from United, you know, pre-Liverpool, there was somebody in between, obviously. And uh, I was like, when, when? So it just goes to show my mind had totally gone to music and I'd been travelling the world for three years and I wasn't even paying attention to what was going on at even the premiership level, you know. Yeah, but see the way you, you spoke about all the things that you've done, like, and I look at, you know, you're, is there anything that you're actually bad at? Because you're, you're a singer, presenter, footballer, could have been a guard, uh, this, the, the presented shows. Is there anything that you're bad at? I'm bad at them all. I just I just get away with them all. <laughs> I'm bad <laughs> at styling my hair, I'm, bad, I'm not great at it. And I, I think, you know, I think... Well, the women, I, the women in the comments seem to like it, so... <laughs> um, that's good. Um, no, I think... I think I'm quite a, I'm quite an ambitious person. And I'm quite hard working. So if I do put my mind to something like, I don't really take on things that I don't enjoy. Like you know, I always had a passion for radio. That didn't happen by accident. After Westlife ended, um, my dad was a singer in a cabaret band all my life. So you know, singing was always in the family. I was always up on stage with him. I hosted karaoke with him. Um, obviously, you know, the football stuff is is you know that was pretty much all my life. So. Um, yeah, I think I think they're, they're passion projects more than you know just kind of trying my hand at stuff. You know, I I I, I don't really do things like even this interview today. I would do because I'm passionate about football. I enjoy it. 
Um, and obviously I have a story, I guess, but no, I wouldn't just do a random interview because if I didn't know what I was talking about, you know? Yeah. Well, see, that was what I was going to ask. That was actually my next question was just kind of, how did you get into to Westlife? Because that obviously went on to be a huge success. I mean, the worldwide, uh, known worldwide. Yeah. Well, it's there. I mean, it's there for the lads in Sligo. You know, the boys went to school together and um, they had done, they, they set up a band called IOU. I mean, this probably story's well, well documented, but they um, they took it to Louis Walsh, who was managing Boys on at the time and held auditions in Dublin. And that fit into just when I, I was telling the story there about leaving Cove Ramblers. I was doing my leaving cert that summer and an audition came up. It was advertised on 98FM and uh, I decided to, to go along and, and sing a couple of songs at it. And uh Louis Walsh was at the, you know, was helping out with the auditions, and um, he decided to to pick myself and Brian McFadden and a couple of other guys to um, to shortlist for the Westlife auditions, and that's pretty much how it started. And within that would have been June or July of ninety seven, ninety yeah ninety seven, and uh, and then it kicked off from there. You know, we went to um, sorry ninety eight it would have been, excuse me, and uh, and then we all of a sudden we were in the studio with Steve Mack, who you know is now one of the biggest songwriters in the world, and. By Christmas, we were touring with Boys On, and by March, we had Swear It Again out, and that was number one. And then we were, I mean, I literally wasn't home from once until the end at that point. You know, it just, just kind of kicked off. Yeah, well, you can see, obviously, because you were on tour so much and you were doing stuff that you would forget about football easily enough. Especially, there's not as much, you know, again, I go back to social media. It's a lot easier now to just pick up a phone and get a result. Obviously, back then, it wasn't. Well, that's it. I mean, nowadays there's the apps. You know, you can get notifications if your favorite team scores or your your team lineup. You know, hits as soon as it announces. As soon as the manager, you know, submits the team sheet, you've got it on your phone. You know, it's a different world. But um, I think as well. I I also think I I I felt. I suppose I felt hard done by without feeling sorry for myself when football. You give so much to something, um, and it was all then based on on for me as far as I was told and you know the height restriction was was a problem for me and um, even going to England Leeds would you know be monitoring my height um, and I'd be constantly comparing myself to to whether it was tall goalkeepers small goalkeepers I mean my favourite keepers in the world and still to this day um, I'd always have a, a soft spot for the keepers who aren't six foot six you know six foot six foot one six even six one is if you look at kind of Casillas Shea Given um, those, that type of height I think is actually a perfect height for a goalkeeper um, you know you're going to have exceptions to the rule you're going to have someone like Peter Schmeichel who's 6'4 and he's an incredible goalkeeper but I suppose I always I, I don't agree a lot of the time with people just picking goalkeepers on height um, that annoys me still annoys me you know and I see it even at a young level I see it at a senior level I see it at a pro level people going, oh yeah he's, he's big he's strong he's this that and the other it's like yeah but is he a goalkeeper you know is he good and that's first and foremost for me. Uh, it's very important nowadays you can play with your feet. I mean, that's 100%. But also, I think even beyond our, before that starts, you have to be a good goalkeeper. You know, your hands have got to be good. You've got to be brave. Position sense got to be good. You've got to be fit, agile. Um, and although my height was against me, I was never really caught out in terms of being chipped. I think where clubs felt that I was struggling was the physicality, was, you know, under set pieces, was, I always remember having a conversation with George Graham when it was being released, um, with, with Paul Hart present and Eddie Gray, and and they said, they used the example of, if I was to play you this week um, against Everton in the Premier League, you know, Everton are just going to look and go, right, Nicky, or that keeper is 5'10", you know, let's put everything on top of him, whether it's corners, whether it's free kicks, 
whether it's whatever. And he says, and then you're going to be competing against Duncan Ferguson. And, you know, Ferguson's, a, a, you know, a monster, as we know. So it's a ruthless industry. And that was the way it was, you know. And um, so, yeah, I get that. And, you know, when you look at that, then you go, right, that's a problem. But um, but certainly if you can cope, you know, if you're, if you're I, I still wouldn't discourage young, young small goalkeepers because, um, you know, you look at Barthez, you look at Cassis, you look at Gibbon. Um, and they're all... Yeah, I'm, and funny enough, you mentioned Pickford. I, I, during the World Cup, I think it was... I think it was Dennis Wise a couple of years ago um, criticised Pickford for being too small, as did Courtois. Um, and I really, I really, I think it was Courtois, wasn't it, that they said he was too small? Um, I think so, yeah. And and that really kind of annoyed me because Courtois is obviously six foot, probably five, six. And straight away, I looked and I thought, and I said this recently on a different Insta Live, um, you always hear too small to be a goalkeeper, but actually... You know, sometimes you look and you go, well, actually, he looks a bit too tall to be a goalkeeper. Now, obviously, exceptions to real Schmeichel, but I always use the example of Messi scoring two goals against Chelsea in the Champions League, and Courtois was beaten twice uh, through his legs from 10 yards, 15 yards, and whatever about being nutmegged, coming out and trying to make a block, but certainly not being nutmegged from 15 yards, that's unacceptable from a goalkeeper. And I think it was because a big man like him couldn't move his feet fast enough, but that's my opinion. Yeah, well, uh, the reason I said Pickford is I'm actually an Everton fan, so I watch him most weeks, and pe- people do actually often criticise his height. Yeah, I mean, but you look at you look at his his, his World Cup he had, for example, with England a couple of years back. Yeah, I and mean, he was frightening, you know. And um, England, England went very, very far, and I, I don't believe. I mean, I don't believe. I mean, it's one thing saying he's too small or criticising his height, but I think people need to show examples. You know, when have you seen Pickford being beaten because he's not tall enough? Um, I would have thought he's quite quick on his feet, quite agile. Where, where you struggle in departments, you have to make up for in other departments. And I think smaller goalkeepers, um, you know, given was sometimes criticised for his height. And Shea's not a small man by any means. Um, and you know, he, he he was very good at moving his feet and making sure that he was good in the air, uh, brave in the air. Um, and I think that's important. You know, Casillas is another example. I actually think Shea Given is a little bit taller than Casillas, and to me. I don't know how you feel about Casillas, but Casillas is probably one of, if not, not the best ever there ever was, you know? So, um, and that's not to say that you can't get, as I said, six foot three, four, five inch goalkeepers. But when I was growing up, I mean, Peter Shilton, I mean, that's going back a while, but he was, he was about 5'11". South Hall was six foot, I think. Um, Bruce Grovelar wasn't the tallest keeper in the world. Uh, you know, there was a lot of keepers that you don't see anymore that were all in and around. How the tall six, was Neville South I think Nev was about six one. Um, yes, there you go. So, but nowadays six one. I mean, you probably get away with six one, but Pickford's probably six foot, six foot one. I think maybe six two. I think. Well, there you go. I mean, if you're I'm saying Pick, if you're saying Pickford's too small at six two, I mean that's just ludicrous. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, no, I didn't say it. Other people. No, said no, it. no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, see, your your son's now playing football and playing at a decent standard. Uh, he's at Bowes now. Um, what would be your advice to him? Uh, in that regard, because obviously you've you've gone a similar route there, so you'd know. Yeah, well, I have two like the twins actually. One's um, they're both playing for Saint Sylvester's GAA for so, and then Rocco's at MJ's at Sylvester as well. Rocco's at um, uh, Kevin's Bowl, so their league yeah. of Ireland season was supposed to start in March, and obviously with everything that's happened, and um, that's you know kind of not happening at the moment, or I don't know when. No one knows, and that's going to pick Goes up. Back, yeah. He's doing well. Uh, Rocco started as, as a young lad. The two of them started a home farm because that was where I went. That was what I knew. And then he moved on to Kevin's. Then went to actually went to Shamrock Rovers for a few years and then went back to Kevin's. Um, 
you know, good keeper, but again, very young. You know, they're all only twelve. He's just turned actually thirteen last week. Um, I would being a keeper, I'm quite critical, so I would be, you know, training them in the garden and saying, you know, you got to be doing this. But I would focus funny because I would always focus on technique, always focus on technique. For me, and if I was coaching any young lad, hands have to be good, feet have to be good, technique, 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 um, and that's where all those little drills come into play. Um, and and but nowadays, you know, the 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 footwork side of it, you know, being able to play from the back is 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 so so important. Um, but I, I also I also have that argument that you know midfielders you know outfield players don't understand goalkeepers you know they'll goal, goalkeepers will consistently get bollocked by outfield players when a lot of the time you're thinking you don't have a clue you know when it comes to goalkeeping so um, yeah. but the, I suppose the voice to, to my lad is just enjoy it you know having somebody who's worked all his his younger life to get away and then have the rug pulled from underneath me and you know feel like a failure I wouldn't necessarily want that to happen to Rocco so I always say. Just enjoy it, you know. You're you're going to get blamed on goals. That's that's the job of a goalkeeper. You're also going to be a hero in games, or you're just going to have a boring game. But concentration has to be high all the time. Um, but just enjoy it. I mean, now I think life, particularly nowadays, with mental health and stuff, it's all about just being happy, you know. And if you enjoy football, play it, and you know if you're good, work hard at it. But um, yeah, I think it's important to have that out, to have a hobby like like that, and take it on to the next level if you can, of course. Yeah, well, I, I know you play a lot of soccer aid and stuff like that. I'll get to that in a sec. But I know your mate is Shay giving him that. Uh, would he be sending stuff to Rocco for you or giving him little tips for you? Yeah, I constantly, um, every now and again, if 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 you have a, a a video of of a save that he might have made or whatever, I'll send it on to Shay and I go here, check this out. I mean, Shay will have a good chat about it. You know what I mean? And um, but yeah, I mean, Shay, Shay's a good friend actually. So you know, I've sent him plenty of videos of Rocco in, in action. Uh, but again, he's so young. I mean, I, I, I looked at loads of training sessions where, where Rocco and his teammates over the years, whatever club he's been at, and, um, you know, you look across and there could be... Like, I remember one night up in Shamrock Rovers, there was the under, say, eights, right up till the, you know, pretty much the reserves training. And Damien Duff was out with the 15s. And I know Duffer as well, obviously, I played with him. So I would have had a brief conversation. But I remember just thinking to myself, because I'd been across the water, I think it was probably... That's a freezing there, Nicky. Can you hear me? I was just saying, like, the chances of one of the kids uh, out of that 200 out on the pitch going and playing... Right now. Uh, going and playing um, in England or playing for their country is really, really, really... Like, it's small because the chances most of the people who go don't actually make the grade. And there's a hundred things that can affect that, whether it's homesickness or... You know, opportunity is a big thing, a big, big thing. And Vin, if you look at Shea Given, I mean, Shea was at Blackburn Rovers. He'd come back from Celtic, gone back over to Rovers. I think he was third or fourth choice. And then he got the opportunity at 19 to go out and loan to Sunderland. They needed to keep him. And then all of a sudden, Shea, when he grabbed it with two hands, I think he kept something like nine or ten clean sheets in the games he was there. Now, all of a sudden, he's worth millions. And Blackburn put him in over Tim Flowers at the time, you know. And then Shea is now an established keeper. So I think opportunity is a massive, massive thing in football. And you have to take the opportunity, and you need a lot of luck on and hard work. Nobody can get time and luck so as well. Hundred percent. It's 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 a lot of that, and height obviously if you're a goalkeeper. <laughs> well, talk to me about you know. I know you you love football, and you're, you're lucky in the sense that you still get to play these uh, soccer aids. You know, getting money for charity and stuff like that, which is great. But as well as that, you get to play against some of the best players that ever played the game. So I suppose in one sense, you still get to live out a little bit of that. 
uh, fantasy that you want to play in these big stadiums against these big players. Yeah, you, you, you're freezing there. Can you hear me? I froze now, am I? Uh, a little bit. What part did you last hear me say? Uh, just with Soccer Raid, getting to play with some top players. That was it. Oh, yeah. So, so basically, I was saying um, the fact that you get to play Soccer Aid, you get to uh, you know raise mo- money for all these charities, but at the same time, you get to play with the, some of the best players that ever played the game and some of the best stadiums that I've, you've ever seen. So I suppose in some sense, you get to live out that fantasy a little bit. It's obviously not the real thing, but it's the next best thing. A hundred percent. I always say that. Like it's if you look at my kind of footballing life, I had a real footballing career up till nineteen, um, at a, a pro level, and you know been lucky enough to be in a, a Premiership squad. And then Westlife took off for for many years, and then you know now because of the Westlife thing, I get you know asked to play in Robbie Williams soccer for UNICEF, which and again because I'm I'm not English, it's brilliant because once you're not English, you get to play with all the international greats as part of the rest of the world. So. I mean, the list has been endless. I've played in the same team as Zidane, Roberto Carlos, Luis Figo, you know, Ryan Giggs, um, Pelo De Canio, uh, Romario, Ronaldinho. Well, I missed the Roy Keane one. I was away with Westlife on tour that year, unfortunately. So I I played against Roy in a different charity game, but I missed playing with him that year. But yeah, I mean, it's Yap Stam, um, Edgar Davids, uh, Kluivert. Uh, It's just been... Over the last 10, 12 years of Soccer Aid, uh, Eric Cantona on a couple of occasions, it's been really, really incredible. Like, you know, and I, I've actually played outfield in a lot of the games and um, and then only in the last two I've gone in goal. And I've experienced it all because I scored in one of the games as an outfield player and then the one last year went to a penalty shootout. I managed to score or save two. We won the game. So it's been brilliant. Live at Old Trafford. We played at Wembley as well. And, you know, ITV with millions watching and, and it's all for charity. It's one of the best weeks of anyone's life. And even the footballers, I mean, Robbie Keane does it a few times as well. And, you know, even Robbie Shane, at all the things he's done, the Soccer Aid week is one of the best fun weeks of your life because you're with all the English lads, all the um, the international lads, and you're living like a footballer for a week. And just, as you can imagine, with pop stars and film stars and footballers, you know, hooked up together for a week. It's great fun. It looks like, I've seen some of the videos, I think yourself or Robbie put them up uh, last year. And just like look like great uh, crack on the bus. You haven't seen songs and stuff like that. It must have been after the game, I think, because they're having a few beers and that. Yeah, the, the camaraderie is great. And what, what's great is we all want to beat England. And what's great for England is, you know, they're wearing their three lines on their chest. And, and to them, they're playing in the World Cup final, obviously. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a real game. I mean, the, the producers of, the, of that whole thing will sit down with the players and say, look, this is it. I know it's for charity, but it's a real football match. And you might have seen over the years... Uh, Edgar Davids had a bit of a run-in with Johnny Wilkes and there's been some tackles flying in. Self and Jamie Redknapp got into a bit of a two-footer tackle at one point years ago. Um, like, nobody pulls out of anything and everybody wants to win. And then everybody forgets about it and, and has a drink in the bar afterwards. So, uh, great to be involved. Great that it's for charity. And for me, you know, the fact I think that I've had a football and background probably gets me on the team sheet quicker than you know, your average celeb, for want of a better word, which is good for me, you know, so, um, but it's, I mean, even through the years, I've been managed in this, in the World Eleven by Jose Mourinho, um, Claudio Ranieri, uh, Kane Dog Leash, um, yeah, it's been, it's been, been amazing. 
Yeah, but that that just sounds like, as I say, as it, the next best thing to being an actual player, and the fact that you get to go in and play against. Did you ever get to play with Casillas? I know he's still playing, actually, isn't he? So he probably doesn't get the call. Uh, no, never. I've never met Casillas. No, and he had a heart attack, didn't he, last year? So yeah. um, I don't think he's playing anymore now. I think he's he's obviously. I mean, he's still young, isn't he? Casillas is probably. I'm 41. I think he's probably about 38 now. Actually, now if he hadn't had that. Heart scare last year. I'm sure he'd still be playing with Porto, but um, yeah, I, yeah, he's one of those guys. When people say on your list, who would you like to meet? You know, Iker Casillas is one of them. You know, well, he's won everything. Yeah, but you know, it's not even. I mean, that's a great accolade to have. And but there's been plenty of goalkeepers that have never won anything that you'd look and go, he was class. To me, I just watched Casillas. Everything about him was 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 first class. I mean, obviously, he made mistakes like any goalkeeper, but. He is everything was right for for a keeper that wasn't the tallest. If you watch him, he was making saves that keepers don't do nowadays. He's making a lot of his saves um, on a six yard line from outside the box shots, um, and that's all about speed of of your feet. Because as soon I say it to Rocco all the time, soon as soon as somebody drops the head to to smash a shot from twenty five yards, at that point they've they've looked to see where you are and they've put their head down to hit a shot. And then it's up to you to steal a couple of yards to close that, to narrow that angle. There's only one in a million, or maybe not a million, one in a hundred that will faint to hit that shot and then dink you like Philip Albert did to Schmeichel many years ago, like Messi's capable of, of or Ronaldo might be capable of. But nine and a half times out of ten, as soon as somebody's put their head down to shoot, you know, they're not dinking you. They're, they're, they're smashing it. And then if you've stolen two or three yards, you're making the save, hopefully. Um, and you know some of the coaches at, at Leeds for me John Burridge Eric Steele they always made a point to all of us which I thought was, was great Nigel Martin would have been training with us then as well where make well, a, great keeper great lad make, make, make the saves inside the goal as in make a small goal in your head inside that big goal so if they're putting in the top corner or the bottom corner you can't be blamed but if you're saving as many nine times out of ten as much around you as possible then you're doing your job, you know. And I think Casillas was very rarely beaten around him. You know, whether it was with his feet, his hands, his head, his body, it was everything. I think you you froze that last bit, but I think I got the gist of it. Um, would you would you ever chance your arm uh, in coaching if things got quiet? Say, I know you do a lot of other things, and I, I, I'm going to get to that lastly. But would you ever uh, get into coaching? Because I can like. Just even talking to you now, I can tell how passionate and how much detail you put into it. I think you might make a good coach if you ever put your mind to it. <laughs> uh, do you know what? When Westlife split in 2012, I actually drew up a bucket list of things I wanted to do. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to get me coaching badges was one. Um, I spoke to a couple of people I knew in the FAI, um, Steve McGuinness from the PFAI, and I had just to, to ask him how would I go about it and stuff. And the fact that I played, played pro football... I think you, you you can kind of get started quickly. Um, it is something that I had, and I never I never took up from then. It is something that I had and I wanted to do. Um, but it's time and now. I chose to go down the route of starting a radio show or joining a radio show on 2FM, and then I really didn't have the time. And um, I think there's a lot of passion there. And I actually do think I could help a lot with with, with it, goalkeeping coaching, but you have to you have to be passionate about putting the time in. You know, you have to be. You know, three, four nights a week, whatever it is, you know, kind of coaching at a club. Um, I just don't have, unfortunately, I just don't have that time now because I'd rather spend that with the ages of my children at the moment. I'd rather spend that time 
with them and going to see their games and hobbies. And, you know, Jay, my, my young lad, plays piano and plays Gaelic. And, you know, my little girl is Irish dancing and drama and everything else. And, you know, then Rocco's obviously soccer and Gaelic as well. So it's about getting to their games, their training sessions as much as possible. So to start taking on a coaching role, yeah, I can't see where it fitted in, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just saying if things, if things did for you. So what, what are you doing uh, at the moment? I know you're doing your, your radio stuff. You've got... Um, I think you had a couple of gigs at Westlife and they're not happening anymore because of what's going on in the world. Um, and then you have this Strictly Come Dancing as well. You're doing that as well, aren't you? Yeah, so when Westlife ended, obviously I was on 2FM for five years, but I knocked that on the head to go on the, to embark on the Westlife reunion last year. So that went brilliantly. You know, we um, released uh, an album called Spectrum and, and Hello My Love was a big hit from that. And uh, we did 53 gigs around the world, which was brilliant. Um, and that all kind of finished up around November last year. Then I hosted Dancing with the Stars, uh, which is strictly uh, in Ireland, Dancing with the Stars, finished in March. We were about to to go on tour again with Westlife. And unfortunately, yeah, with, with everything that's going on, you know, that's all being kind of binned at the minute. Um, and obviously, we look to revisit that when the time is right and and, and everybody's happy and healthy. Uh, it's a shame for everybody, but for the right reason, obviously, we cancelled. But we had two nights in Park at Cueve to do next uh, to do this year. Wembley Stadium, we had to do with another 20-odd gigs in the UK and then more around Asia as well. So I think we were going to be looking, had everything, you know, gone right. We were probably looking at another 50-plus shows around the world. Now it's it'll be none. Uh, I, I think Wembley is still alive at the moment at the end of August, but I can't see that. Everything else being postponed. I can't see Wembley happening, although at the moment it still is on. Um, so it, it's really about planning for next year now, to be honest. It's about, I think, pressing reset um, like the whole world has and, just my, you know, everybody trying to get themselves through this now, you know. And just what what are you doing yourself just to keep yourself occupied? I know you're doing a couple of these Instagram lives, and I've seen you. You actually, to be to be fair, I, I really like what you did with the the Instagram lives and, and adding people in and just having a quick chat with them. You really made their day. That was a really nice touch from you. Yeah, well, I think it was just from everybody's the same, aren't they? You're just trying to 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 get through the days, and uh, I think we've been lucky with the weather. Actually, you know, to keep yeah, people have been out to the house. Uh, in your garden or on your street staying away obviously social distancing as much as you can be um, so yeah Insta Lives obviously um, getting getting some fans on board and having a quick chat with them uh, fitness wise you know you know, just trying to do little things around the house and a small little gym tip tip over on that go for cycles go for runs within that 2k radius I think everybody's the same aren't they you're just trying to keep you know your head clear and, and, and keep healthy and, and, and happy and healthy and just keep thinking there's light at the end of the tunnel here you know this will Hopefully be done with soon. Yeah, well, Nikki, um, I won't keep you any longer. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. I had a great chat with you and uh, learned a lot that I didn't actually know. Happy days. And listen, keep up the good work. I've been watching yours as well. The insula has been going well. Thanks very much. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, okay? Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was absolutely class. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, I'm going to end that now. Um.